You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, as Nicole, as Nicole read, I need to give a... Uh, uh, I guess a, a, a disclaimer on the front end today, full transparency on the front end. I, I ended with full transparency last week, remember that? I'm beginning with full transparency, transparency this week. What, what I need to let you know on the front end is that I'm gonna gloss over much of today's text. Um, uh, there's a lot in here, uh, but I'm gonna gloss over a lot of it. I'm gonna probably frustrate some of you um, because I'm doing that. The reason is uh, because I really just wanna laser in, go really deep into the final imperative. Remember last week, imperatives and indicatives? Final imperative that we ended off with last week very briefly. It's seen verse 22. It's the imperative, love one another. I want to go deep into it. And so I will hit every verse in a sense, but um, if you want to study it on your own, do so because there is a lot of sweetness in it. So that's my disclaimer, okay? So let's um, pray, stop, pray together. Uh, I was in Acts 10 this morning uh, for a little bit. There's this scene in Acts 10 where Peter is preaching and it says the Holy Spirit fell on the listeners to his word. Um, I wanna pray for that. I wanna pray that as I preach, because if I'm just preaching without the Spirit's power, this is a waste of your time um, and it's a waste of my time and we're just, we're, we're laboring in vain. So let's ask that the Spirit of God would meet with us uh, through his word today. And so we, we do pray for that. Um, please, um, uh, God, by way of your spirit and, and by way of this book that the Spirit wrote, do a work in us, um, open our eyes. We have an enemy that loves to blind, so open our eyes. I pray against the enemy. I pray against distraction, even good distraction. I, I pray that we would be um, expectant and, and ready to hear from you. Um, you're always speaking, we know that. Uh, the problem is never you being a, a, a non-speaker, the problem is our listening. And so help us to listen well, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, depending on how you count it, um, there are at least 59 one, one another commands um, in the New Testament. Greet one another, honor one another, pray for one another, serve one another, and so on. But the most prominent and most significant of those one another commands is what we see here in verse 22, the command to love one another. Uh, most prominent uh, because it comes up more than any other one another statement in the New Testament, but most significant in part at least because of something Peter writes and you can just go over to chapter four, what he writes in verse eight, when he says there, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So above everything else, make sure you do this. He's not alone though in talking about the significance of the call to love one another. As we know, very famously in 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter, Paul writes, there's faith, there's hope, there's love. But the greatest of these, meaning if you're gonna categorize them, the greatest of these is love. In fact, in that same chapter, what Paul does is he lists some very admirable acts like martyrdom, like having all knowledge, 
like giving everything away. And he says, look, man, if you do those but have not love, you're nothing. Jesus says something similar um, when he writes uh, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, and and he says to them, uh, look, uh, because you're doing what you're doing, not out of love, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip you out of your place. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut the, the church down. This is even after Jesus commends them for some very great things. He says, if you are doing this out of love, it's not worth it. Significant. It's that, it's that significant. Um, here's what I want to do with our time this morning. I want to go deeper, as I said, Um, And I want to consider why we are commanded to love one another. Have you ever thought about it? Like, why are we commanded to love one another? Uh, We'll we'll consider how we are to love one another as well. But I want to begin with why, because doesn't the command at at least a little bit seem rather strange? A command to love one another. I mean, isn't everyone into love? We love love right? We, so why the command? I mean, a command like this seems like commanding us to breathe. It's just what we do. We're, we're into love, and besides, is it even possible to make someone love someone else? Try that sometime. And is it possible to love all others? That's a stretch. A couple dozen, maybe? I mean, how much love does a person have, have to give? And, and and what if there are other people or people in the other group that you just don't want to love, that aren't lovable? I know that's hard to believe that there are people even in the church that aren't lovable, but just look around. I mean, just <laughs> look around. I know it's not you, but that person in front of you, you know, let's be honest. And if you're in the front row, not in front of you, you turn around and, and look back. <laughs> and, and yet, and yet Peter thinks it's reasonable to give this command. And Jesus himself thinks it's reasonable too. In fact, Jesus takes things up a notch. And he says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Now it's taken it up a notch. You also are to love one another. Here's what's really strange about what Jesus says here. It's not a new command though. The Old Testament is full of places where we are commanded to love God and love our neighbor. Jesus, he said, actually, the whole Old Testament law hinges on those two commands. So so Jesus, why is it a new command? We'll end with that. So keep it in mind. But first, let's ask, why are we called to love one another in spite of the seeming senselessness and unreasonable, unreasonableness of, of it. Well, one reason why is because we've been empowered to. Uh, we've been called to something that we've been empowered for. It's as if, here's the beauty of God, it's as if God realized how unreasonable this was. To, to love one another, just as Jesus has loved us. And so what did he do? He sent He sent some help. Paul writes in Romans 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul writes elsewhere in Galatians 5 that the first fruit of the Spirit that's been poured into us is the fruit of love. 
that it's first also emphasizes again the significance of this command to love one another. But what it also tells us is that God's love poured into our hearts is to be shared, not hoarded, shared because fruit is meant to be shared. God always blesses us to be a blessing. It's, it's never to stop with us. As I've talked about a million times over the years, we are conduits of grace, conduits of blessing, and that certainly includes the love that's been poured into our hearts. John writes, 1 John 4, 16, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God uh, abides in him. So, so God not only calls us to love one another, he empowers us to love one another, and he must because the love that he calls us to is unreasonable. Unre I'm having a tough time with unreasonable. Unreasonable if left on our own. It's amazing, amazing. I speak for a living. A second <laughs> Is it important to be able to talk well? Yeah, it, it, it is. Enunciate, enunciate. A second reason why we are to love one another is because we've been saved to. Take a look at verse 22. Peter writes, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for, really important word, underline it if you like it, if you like underlining words, for, here's the reason, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a a pure heart. Now, you may be a little confused over that statement. Having purified our souls by our obedience to the truth, that sounds like works-based salvation. Here's what you need to remember or know um, about how, what Peter is doing here and what, what shows up in other places in the Bible as well. Peter, this is speaking of our conversion. This is speaking of our being born again, as Peter mentions in the next verse. Belief and obedience are being used as synonymous terms. Let, let me prove it to you. Hang a right, chapter four, verse 17. Peter writes there, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey? There it is, obey the gospel of God. But Peter's not alone. Paul does the same thing. Paul makes the connection between belief and obedience really clear when he writes in Romans 10, verse 16. You can read it behind me. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. So there's our word obey. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed. See the connection. What he has heard from us. We, we normally don't do this. We normally um, don't think of belief and obe obedience in in this way, but we should because salvation is more than an intellectual assent. As James writes, even the demons believe and shudder. Why? <laughs> because they're not obedient. They know about God, but not in a way that brings salvation and hope to them. So, so back to our verse. Verse 22, our souls have been purified by our obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. This is our mission. This, this is your purpose in life, my purpose in life. This is our call. This is why we have been saved. 
so closely associated is our love with our salvation, this call to love with our salvation that John, same John as we heard from before, he writes in 1 John 3.14, again, you can read it behind me, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How, how John? How do we know? By my baptism, my church attendance, my giving, my serving, taking communion. How, John? No, none of those. You can know that you are saved because we love the brothers and sisters, one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. You, you can't say, he says a chapter later, you can't say that you love God and hate your brother. You're, you're lying to yourself. It's a litmus test. No, no, no matter how great your theology is and church attendance is and your philanthropy. <laughs> wow, kickstart the mouth today. Doesn't matter. The litmus test is our love for our brothers and sisters. John was there when Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we are commanded to love and we are empowered to love, for we have been saved to love. But how are we to love? How are we to love one another? Let me give you six ways. Way number one, we are to love supernaturally. Um, I've more, more than hinted at this already, but this is the only way this command makes sense. For, for one, people don't need to be commanded to love. It's built into us. It's a part of our Imago Day, whether you believe in God or not. You've been created in the image of a God who is love, and so it flows out of it. Like I said earlier, we love love. We love our parents, we love our kids, we love our siblings, we love our friends, we love our spouses. We love to sing about love. I talked about this in East, at Easter time. We love to sing about love, we love to make love, and we believe that all we need is love. So why this command? Well, because the love we are called to is a love of a, of a different kind. It, it's not a worldly love. It's otherworldly. Jesus makes this clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? By, by referring to the tax collectors, what Jesus is doing at that time is saying, look, even the worst of people who have no relationship with God love others. Hitler probably loved his kids. But as Jesus says a few verses earlier, we are to love our enemies and we're to pray for those who persecute us and not pray for their demise, but pray for their flourishing. And, and Midtown, that's asinine. It's asinine. And, and it's unreasonable. Unless we have a spiritual power that enables us to. And I would add, unless we have an example to follow. 
if only there was somebody who went before us and is calling us to something that he did himself. Praying on a cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So we are to love supernaturally. Secondly, we are to love corporately. We are to love one another. Um, Our love isn't to be a reserved love. It's not to be an exclusive love. It's not a a love just for some. And remember, this is being written to exiled Christians who are part of local churches in what is today modern-day Turkey. Um, I say that he is writing to Christians located in church. This would have been a circular letter. It would have gone from one church to one church to one church. I say he's writing to people, Christians, in churches because in in chapter 5, he refers to the elders among them. So we are to love corporately one another. Thirdly, we are to love sincerely, as Peter writes here. Our our love is not to be phony. It's not to be put on. It's not to be fake. It's not to be manufactured. And the reason for that is because it can't be. This kind of love that we're called to can't be faked. It it requires the Spirit in us to evidence evidence His fruit out of us. Fourth, we are to love familially. Um, it's to be a brotherly love. Uh, this is the word phileo. If you've ever been to Philadelphia, you've been to phileo Delphia. It's the city of brotherly love. This is a love between brothers and sisters because we are brothers and sisters. We have the same father. Uh, Jesus is our brother. And we've all been born again into the same family. And we haven't been born again by something temporary, something that will lose its luster and glory, but by the living, abiding, and eternal word of God, which is what Peter writes of in verses 23 to 25, which is the only real comment that I will make on those verses, other than to say that this loving, uh, living and abiding word of God, this good news of the gospel, that was preached to us is our common ground. It's important to realize this because this is what enables us to love one another, because we stand on the same ground, the gospel ground. All of us together, this gospel that was preached to us is what breaks down all racial, cultural, and social barriers. Because of the gospel and being in Christ, there is no Jew and Greek. There's no slave and free. There's no rich and poor. There's no educated and uneducated. There's no male and female. Jesus and his gospel is our unifier, brings us together. Now, do those individuals exist in the church? Yes, but they aren't to get in the way of our relationship with one another. There are places in this city that you can't go to because you don't have enough money. or or enough education, or you're the wrong gender, not the church. The church is where rich and poor love one another. Educated and uneducated love one another, and so on. So we are to love familially. We're all brothers and sisters. Fifth, we're to love earnestly. Earnestly, earnest love here can also be translated fervently. It speaks of intensity. It's uh, actually an athletic term. Uh, speaks of striving with all of one's might, which means something really important about our understanding of this love. 
And that is, this is not an emotional love. Although it can include emotions, but it doesn't rest on emotions. It's an act of love. It, it's, it's an in spite of love. Uh, it's, a pray, it's a praying love. It's a serving love. It's a, a volitional love. It's a selfless love. It's a, a, a coming alongside of others kind of love. It's a, it's a giving love. For God so loved that he gave. For any love that doesn't give is no love at all. So why this is so important is it allows us and enables us to understand how can we love one another? How can we love everybody? Because of this. Because of what we're called to. In this way, you never fall out of love. You don't, you, you don't fall out of this kind of love. And lastly, we are to love purely. We are to, to love from a pure heart. Uh, this doubles down on, on the call to love sincerely and spreads, speaks of a love that doesn't come with ulterior motives. It's pure. No loving just to get something in return, for example. So that's how we are to love. It's tough, though, to, to love one another if we don't know one another. Right? Tough to love like this if we don't open ourselves up to this kind of love. Makes it really difficult. T tough to love like this if we view church life as a spectator sport. And, and Sunday mornings, for example, is a quick in and out. Tough to love like this if you're indifferent or apathetic. Really tough to love like this. T tough to love like this if we aren't committed to loving like this. Tough to love like this if we take this as a mere suggestion and not the most significant command in the Bible, which it is. Paul writes in Romans 13:8 that we are to owe no one anything except to love each other. You ever, I know probably most of us have experienced having to take out a loan, borrow some cash, maybe from a friend, someone you know, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, whatever it is. Every time you bump into them, if you haven't yet paid off the debt, you feel like, oh, man, I owe that person some money. I've got to remember to bring some money, pay that person back. That's how we are to function here. When we bump into each other, we should feel, I owe them something, L love. Owe no one anything other than the debt to love each other. Tough to love like this if we excuse ourselves based on our youth and adolescence, too. You know, they say um, the that 50 is the new 30. You've heard that, right? <laughs> it's awesome. For me, 55 is like the new 73, roughly. It's just got old overnight, dude. Um, sometimes I think, as it relates to the Christian faith, that 18 is the new six. And I know I've just lost every 18-year-old that attends Midtown. 
But too many who are younger excuse themselves based on their youth and adolescence. Paul writes a couple of letters to Timothy. And Timothy's a young pastor. We don't know how old, but probably in his 20s. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. Don't. And everybody like, yeah, right? If you're young, yeah, man. You write it, Paul. But then he says this, but set an example to all believers, in your faith, in your speech, in your conduct, and you know what else? Your love. Your love. But it's tough to love like this if you excuse yourself based on youth and adolescence. Tough to love like this if you excuse yourself based on your retirement too. You don't have an out. Everyone among us is called to love like this. Tough to love like this if you feel you have already had enough love, you have enough, enough love already, without recognizing that another may need a, a love that only you can give. And last, at least for this sake of our time today, tough to love like this if you've been hurt in the past and you're determined to not be hurt again. Because a love like this risks, takes chances. Love like this trusts and hopes. But it's tough to love like this if you're just determined not to be hurt again. Are there barriers to this kind of love? Big time. Even though we've been called and saved and empowered for it, big time, which is why Peter writes what he does in verse one of chapter two. Take a look at it. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So verse 22 of chapter one was what we are to put on. Those are the clothes we are to put on, love clothes. We're to put on, here's what we need to take off. Malice, first of all, speaks of what? Ill will. It has the idea of malignancy in it, uh, a malignant tumor or, or something along those lines. We, we, they attack other things. They don't stay to themselves. We want to be benign in the church. Malice speaks of doing evil. It, it plans to do evil. It rejoices in people's downfall. You know you're bitter against someone if you hear bad news about them and you rejoice in that. That's a bitter spirit. Deceit and hypocrisy can be grouped together. They speak of what is false. They stand in contrast, stark contrast to the sincere love we are, are to have. Envy isn't happy for others. Uh, it wants what others have. In contrast, love, love joins your happiness with their happiness. I, I have a person in my life that if something good goes on in my life, I can always tell they're envious. They're never happy for me. I remember pastoring the church previous to this west side and, and things were going well and I remember a pastor pulling me aside saying, I hate you for the success of west side. <sighs> wow. Slander 
is hurtful, harmful speech, or maybe in our day, hurtful or harmful texts, emails, uploads, videos. Peter says, put them all away. Put them all away. Take them off. Get rid of them. Kill them. Mortify them. Destroy them. Whatever it takes. But let me ask you a question. Who is Peter writing to? Well, well the answer, as we know, if you've been around, he's, he's writing to exiled Christians. God's children. He's writing to God's children. Holy. Holy people. Born again people. Purified people. Ransomed people. Peter is writing to people in the church. So why is this instruction necessary? Well, the answer is because malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander tempt and threaten us and show up in the church. <laughs> do, you, do you know that the person who writes in verse 1 to put all hypocrisy away is the poster boy for hypocrisy in the New Testament? Like example one of hypocrisy is Peter. So much so that Paul writes about it in Galatians 2 and says, I had to confront him to his face, man. I got in his grill and he stood there condemned. But these elements shouldn't be part of the church, should they? The church should be different. Christians should be different. We shouldn't deceive one another. We, we shouldn't hurt one another. We shouldn't plot evil against one another. I agree with you. I couldn't agree more. And yet it happens. And the threat is always there as the flesh wage, wages war against the spirit, which is why Peter instructs us to put them away. However, and in no way do I want to excuse or diminish any sin or hurt, large or small, that you have experienced in the church. So please hear me on, on the front end of what I'm about to say. But based on the reasoning that I've heard a lot over the years by people in the church, based on the reasoning that these things shouldn't be in the church because the church should be different, and I agree with you that it should, but based on that reasoning, then the most harmonious of all relationships on planet Earth should be the relationship between a Christian husband and a Christian wife. Think about it. There's only two of you. There's just two, man, not hundreds. Two of you, and you get to choose one another. You don't get thrown together. I, I, I don't think so. Maybe that may be true in some, some of your lives. I don't know, but I don't think so. You get to choose one another, and you get to vet the process, vet them out in the process, right? You can date, talk. What are you into? How many kids you want? What do you like? You share likes, dislikes, passions, foods, music, and your faith. And you get to make love. Eros love. Philadelphia love or phileo love is a love for one another. Eros love is a love exclusive to one other. And you get to experience it 
so many advantages that the church doesn't have, and yet, as we know, even the best Christian marriages go through hard times. Families, too. Friendships. Harmful speech. Deceit. Angry words. Hurtful texts. Insincerity, at times at least. By both parties who say they love Jesus. This shouldn't be. And I agree. And this won't be one day but on this side of heaven it will be, and why? Well, because in a marriage the two people are works in progress. And in the church the hundreds of people are works in progress too. That's not to excuse the behavior, it's just to help understand it. But here's, here's the divinely wonderful, sweet, precious, beautiful thing about all of this. Our love and our grace and our mercy and our compassion on this side of heaven aren't best expressed when things go well, but when things don't. As someone has said, a marriage isn't built on the good times, but in how it handles the bad. So too the church. Midtown, how do we know that God loves us? Because Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. That's what makes his love and and grace so remarkable. And, And here's the thing. How do we know that same love of God is in us? Because we'll love, not like the tax collectors, but like those who love their their enemies and pray for those who who persecute us, even when those kinds of people exist, sadly, in the church. Uh, Over the years, I, I, I am no longer surprised when verse one characteristics show up in the church. What surprises me more so is people not responding with grace when they do. That, to me, is more remarkable. Not excusing the behavior. I'm not saying permitting the behavior, but not being willing to extend grace when grace is being asked for. That is remarkable to me. God, help us, because we need help to love like this. I I mentioned earlier some things that make it difficult Uh, and and tough to love like this. Let me add one more uh, with the few minutes that I have remaining. It's, It's tough to love like this if you're spiritually malnourished, which is what Peter talks about in verses two and three. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Um, boy. One of the things that I have discovered in my life over time is that it's really hard to fake the Christian life. You know what I mean? The call is just too too difficult. In fact, few things are worse 
than attempting to live the Christian life when you're spiritually empty, and nothing harder. In fact, I would say impossible, trying to, to love the unlovable by, while being void of spiritual food. And Peter gets this, that we don't live the Christian life by bread alone. We need to be spiritually fed, and we need to feed ourselves on spiritual food, like prayer and, and, and being in the Word and worship and, and, and coming together. We need to be devoted to the fellowship. We need one another. We can't live the Christian life by ourselves. We are to crave these things like a baby craves milk. You ever seen a little baby latch on to mom? Man, they love it, man. Can't get it off, right? Just pop. And, and, and I don't know why I said that. And we are nurses. All right, my apologies. And, and here's the other thing we have to understand about this spiritual food. We are nourished meal by meal in our lives. Not at one time. Can you imagine that? Mom and dad, new baby, about to feed the baby and going, you know what, to make this easy and simple and convenient, why don't we just kind of tally up the total calories between now and 18 and give it all at once? <laughs> right? See, see how that goes. No, meal by meal by meal. You're getting a meal this morning. You get a meal when you go to CG. You, you, get, you get a meal when you get up on your own and you crack your Bible and you have your coffee or whatever. Those are meals, meal by meal by meal. And all of a sudden, three, five, ten years later, you you're healthy and bigger and growing. So we need to be spiritually nourished to carry this out. The Christian life in general, but certainly the call to love one another as we are called to. As I wrap up, and I know I need to, two very brief additional comments on why we are to love one another. The first is a reminder, and it's uh, my way of summing up verses uh, 4 to 10. In Christ, we, we are a new community, and we ha have entered a new covenant. We are a holy priesthood. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen race. We're a holy nation. We're God's possession. We're receivers of mercy, once in darkness, now called to light to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's verses 4 to 10. Glossed over, I know, but that's verses 4 to 10. But what I want you to hear most of all in that, as I give you all of those things that Peter lists about us now, is hear the plurality of that. We're, we're a people. We're a household. We need each other. Each of us are living stones, but we are being built up into a spiritual house. What's the cornerstone? Who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. Some stumble over him. Some build their lives on him. That's verses 4 to 10. So we are to love this way because we have a new identity, new community. But second, with that new identity comes a new power, by way of the Holy Spirit and the people that we are a part of. But with that power comes new expectations midtown. And with those expectations come new want-tos, what, what the Puritans called new affections. We have new loves. For God doesn't only want our obedience, he wants our affection. As I've said, we have a relationship with a person, not a theology. But we also, here's the advantage, we also live in a new place in history. We live in the age of the it is finished. 
We, we live on this side of the cross. We, we don't live in a place of shadows anymore. We live in the, the place of reality where, where things like what Peter lists, things like temples, nations, a priesthoods, those kinds of things, those things that were full, that the Old Testament is full of, those are now fulfilled in Christ and in us, the church. That too is verses four to 10. And in all of this, we see that we were not only saved and, and empowered to love, but Midtown, we were saved by love. Jesus rejected so, so we could be accepted. Jesus scorned so that we would be loved, which is what makes the command of Jesus new and why he says we are to love as he has loved. For we have seen his love, a perfect love that loved us to the end, and nothing testifies, nothing testifies to what we have seen more than our love for God and our love for others, nothing. I'll close this way. One of the uh, early church fathers, Church fathers are those individuals that uh, came on the backs of the early church, first century church, the, 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 uh, the first fathers coming after the apostles. Very important, the church fathers, because they really give us information uh, to help us understand what was the church like early on. Um, and one of the most prolific early writers, church fathers, um, who wrote much about this was a man named Tertullian, wrote much about the church wrote much about the growth of the church, the explosion of the church going into about the mid-100s. And one of the things that he writes is how the pagans, as he referred to non-Christians, how the pagans at the time, although not following Jesus, would often remark of Christians, oh, how they love one another. I wonder if those same people showed up today, they would say the same. Can we make it our aim that they would? You in on that? Like, let's make it our aim. Above all, let's love one another earnestly. Above all. Would you stand as we go into a time of response? Let me pray for us and then come when you're ready. Father, now we do respond. Uh, I prayed on the front that you would meet with us, uh, that you would meet with us by way of your spirit, working through the word that you have given and inspired for us, to us, um, and, and now we respond. Um, so do your work, please do your work. Uh, show us those things that we need to leave. Show us those things that we need to put away. Show us those things that we need to put on. Um, we want to be a people known by and for our love. I pray for those here, perhaps they're like the church in Ephesus right now. They've lost their first love. I pray that they would hear the invitation of Jesus to, to return to the love they had at first. Um, so I, I pray for that kind of sweet ministry. I pray for those here who have never experienced for the first time uh, the love of God in Christ Jesus. I pray that they would come to Jesus today, say yes to Jesus. Why would you not? 
Why would you not want that love? So I, I pray that they would, that they'd come to Jesus today, turn from their sins, repent of their sins, come to Jesus, start following Jesus today. And for all of us, for all of us, Father, uh, grace upon grace is ours. You never send us away empty-handed. And so as we come and respond, fill us with grace, strengthen us with grace for the task at hand because we don't have the ability to do it in our own strength. So meet with us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.